0: following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Today's Gospel reading is from the Gospel of Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 9. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice, This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them, but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead.
1: Good morning. Uh, my name's Matthew. I'm the priest at the South Wedge Mission, which uh, is a community right up the road from Artisan and uh, also a frequent attender of Artisan and uh, really a grateful recipient of the many gifts and amazing ministry and witness of this community. It means so much to me and my family. And as always, it's a joy to be able to be with you today and to give back by sharing a little bit. And I'm excited to be here today sharing about the Feast of the Transfiguration because it's like my favorite feast and one of my favorite Bible stories and uh, I'm actually here at St. John's Episcopal Church in Canandaigua, where I already um, supplied for another friend of mine, uh, David Heffling, who's the priest here. So I've got you've got your Lutheran pastor here at an Episcopal church in our kind of you know awesome, progressive whatever it is artisan church. And it's so fun to bring those threads together. And, you know, I could I could do 20 different sermons on, Episcop- on Episcopalian, not on that, no, <laughs> on Transfiguration, because there's just so much in this short little story to unpack. But I'm going to try to keep it focused on, on just a few things, because I know that uh, y'all know I can go as long as you want me to. But we're going to try to keep it um, focused here. Um, Transfiguration is a cool story. Um, and the fact that Moses and Elijah make an appearance here. Uh, that Mark or the gospel writer is geeking out by writing some fan fiction and bringing his favorite, you know, Bible characters to witness to this moment should tell us that it's way more important than the church calendar or our practice might allow us to, right? Like my, my, my kids and I, we like to watch The Mandalorian and other shows and especially almost anything on Disney now, right? The way that they show you an episode is important or they're trying to get your attention is they make a cameo from someone famous, right? Like uh mandalorian you know the season two there's all sorts of cameos from famous star wars characters and i don't want to spoil it if anyone hasn't watched it yet although if you haven't watched it yet i'm assuming you're not going to but right they only bring in those famous characters to let you know that this is an important moment and then you geek out and you freak out and you're like oh my gosh it's that guy that my my childhood is back you know it 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 makes you freak out right you geek out and freak out um it's pointing to the fact that this story is really important It's also right in the middle of the Gospel of Mark. In fact, in Mark, Matthew and Luke, it's right in the middle of the story, right? It's the midpoint. Uh, The midpoint between kind of birth and death is the transfiguration. In the Gospel of Mark, there's no um, Christmas story, right? There's no any kind of story. You just start off with the baptism of Jesus. And in the original kind of oldest document we have of Mark, there's no resurrection story either. There's just baptism and it ends with cross, right? It ends with Jesus's empty tomb. Uh, and right in the middle of that is transfiguration. These are kind of three peak moments, and we like the baptism of Jesus, right? The, this is my beloved Son. Uh, we love the cross, right? It reminds us this is Christ making belovedness known to all of creation. But we pass over this mountain here in the middle, this transfiguration mountain, um, where what is revealed is the glory, the glory of Jesus' true nature. And look, I'm going to say uh, like light and dark imagery a lot in this sermon because there's a lot of light. In this, and I just want to say right up front, I'm not trying to code that with any kind of skin tones, any kind of morality. uh, Not trying to map that onto anybody else's culture. I'm I'm just—it's the simplest way to get to this language. But acknowledging the problematic coding of light and dark uh, around moral grounds in our history, and especially in the church. But all that is to say, the light pouring forth from Jesus, uh, bleaching him right as white as any light has ever been, including all the colors in the spectrum. This is a big moment in which Jesus' godly, God-given nature, his true divinity, his true radiance and glory is shining forth. And it's, uh, it's, been weird in the Western church in particular, because again, we don't celebrate this feast nearly as much as they do in the Eastern church and like the Eastern Orthodox church and other traditions where transfiguration and incarnation are much more central to the story than crucifixion or even resurrection. Um, in the Eastern church and in the early, earliest church theologians, who were all just one church, there wasn't an Eastern and a Western church, they really focused on this idea of glory, not just being something that um, is from God and that's for God, but something that God is intent on sharing and bringing out in every single human being. Uh, one ancient church theologian, Athanasius, said, God becomes like us so that we can become like God. That when we see Jesus's glory in this story mirrored to us, it's not just, oh, look at how great Jesus is and let's all worship him. It's also this mirror that reflects on the gloriousness of human nature, this dignity and this inner divinity that God has planted in each of our hearts as the image of God, um, that we have a godly given Godly, God-given, beloved nature of our own that Christ is trying to draw forth and reflect in us to restore our awareness of and our connection to, and to challenge us to work for on behalf of others. The reason Christians are called to work for justice, I mean, justice is a great ideal in itself, and certainly God has a heart for justice, and we're called to be in the image of God. But it's also because every single human being who exists carries this image and this seed and this radiance of divinity within them. And it is our job to nurture that forth, to cultivate that life, not just to protect people from bad things, but to promote their flourishing and the unveiling and the bringing forth of this glory that is in every single human being. God, uh, maybe you grew up in a tradition where it talks about we just need to glorify God, all glory to God, glory, 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 God, God, right? I know in a lot of Calvinist traditions that I've been around, glory, right? Westminster Catechism, line one, glorify God and enjoy God forever, right, is the point of our lives. But what I love about the story is that this glory isn't something God just hoards and hides away. The glory that God has is something God wants to share and bring out in others. Like God's glory is not a zero-sum competitive game. There is an abundance of glory, an abundance of beauty, an abundance of goodness. It draws us back to the creation story at the beginning of all things when God said three things about the world. God said, let there be light. This is really good. And let there be more. God didn't say, let there be light and goodness so it can all come back to me and it can all be mine. God wants it to spread. God wants it to be shared. God wants it to flow. Um, Another quote that some of you have heard me say before that's one of my favorite quotes from St. Irenaeus is that the glory of God is a human being fully alive. The glory of God is a human being fully alive. That's not something we often hear. We often hear, well, we need to, we need to, you know, be humble and we need to hide ourselves and we need to just always, you know, glory to God, score your touchdown, point to God. And, and we should do that, right? We need to do that both and. But the good news is it's this, this flow, right? It's not a zero sum game. There is enough glory to go a lo- around. And the fact that Elijah and Moses are brought in here, right? The, these, these uh, cameos from the, from the Jewish tradition representing the law and the prophets, representing the two, two of the greatest heroes of judaism and two of the most important spiritual figures should tell us that this is a message that we shouldn't miss on the way to the cross right we're not meant to just go from we're really bad people the world is dark but jesus saved us the end like god didn't just come to fix broken things and get rid of all the bad things god is coming to restore and draw out and make radiant the goodness and the divinity and the godly god-given nature of all of creation and in each and every single one of God's beloved children. It's why it's the midpoint of the story. It's why it's this peak. And I would even posit, um, as as some of you um, know, we're starting the season of Lent this week, right? The season where we transition from epiphany and all these kind of revelations of glory into this time when traditionally the church has talked about things like mortification and fasting and getting in touch with our death, right? Ash Wednesday is all about remember your dust, to dust you shall return. And I'm really thankful that um, when we take seriously incarnation and in, in the humanity and the bodies and the flesh and the things of this world that God has given us, we do take seriously death. We do take seriously brokenness. We do take seriously um, the full drama of what it means to be human. And I would say that I think this story happens here in the church year in order to frame Lent, to be kind of um, a pole that matches up with um, the cross and the resurrection. It gives us Jesus's why, for why God thought all this was worth it in the first place. To remind us that this journey to the cross, this journey through the shadowlands of Lent and of facing our mortality and of recognizing those patterns and those habits and those sins which keep us from loving God and loving others, and that Jesus would take that up Become as we are and endure our own riches and our own hatred and our own discomfort with him. All of that is worth it because Jesus sees in us that same reflection of glory that God sees in Jesus on this mountaintop. When Jesus looks at each of us, he's looking with the eyes of God, which see in us the beloved, this radiant, shining, beautiful, glorious being that God made good, that God made full of light, and that God wants to pass on to the world. So in this moment, we see Jesus and Moses and Elijah not only witnessing to the glory of God and the glory of Jesus, but also the glory of each and every single human being God loves, made good, fills with light, and wants to share with the world. That's why Jesus goes to the cross, not just to fix some broken things and make God look really good. God doesn't need that. But for us to remember, to reconnect, and to regain a sense of mission in the world where it is our job, our delight, and our duty to cultivate and bring forth and to liberate the light and the goodness and the belovedness in others. That's why we do these things. It was worth it to Jesus. It was worth it to God because of this beauty and this goodness, because God will not lose a single thing that God has made. In some ways, it may be just as valid a way to start Lent as saying, remember that you are dust and to dust you shall return. Might also be to say, remember that you are glory and to glory you shall return. Remember that you are light, and to light you shall return. You shall be filled with it. It will shine forth, and it will cultivate the life of this world. Now, I love that gospel. It makes me really excited because just to think of that is very different than especially if you grew up Lutheran like me. You hear a lot about sin and being a sinner and we need grace. And that's awesome stuff, too, you know. And maybe you grew up in a tradition with lots of glory. And um, so having the Ash Wednesday thing is actually really helpful for you, too. So that's what's great about all these different Christian traditions and different ways of being Christian and practicing Christianity. Or even if you're not a Christian, but you like to practice this way. There's something for everybody, right? This full spectrum of humanity. Um, but one of the things that strikes me as I get excited about this uh, gospel and this story and this glory is I kind of feel like Peter in the story. And not because I want to prolong my retreat and stay on the mountaintop experience forever because it's so great. Although, that, you know, some some of us are like that listening to peter respond at first he seems like he has this amazing response right like let's make a tent let's capture this moment let's stay here let's learn let's soak this in let's build a a tabernacle right just like back in the day when the israelites were in the desert they wanted to build a tabernacle and later on king david wanted to build a temple like let's make a place where we can encounter this glory more focusedly more um, concretely on a regular basis Uh, of course if you'll remember. Uh, And in the story of David, God actually doesn't really want a temple, many more than God really wants the Israelites to have kings. God's kind of like, it's everywhere. The glory is all around. Uh, If you want a temple, that's more for you than it is for me. In the book of Revelation, at the end of all things, there's no temple. There's just the light of Christ and the people of God gathered around Christ in this glorious, beautiful scene. There is a tree whose leaves are for the restoration of the nations and for the healing of all things. There's Christ, there's people, there's healing, there's restoration, there's no temple. And that made me think, looking at that next line in the gospel, maybe you missed it. It says that they were afraid and they actually didn't know what to do. Like they were totally freaked out, right? Gospel of Mark, writer Mark is geeking out. He's loving this. This is a great story. I want you all to hear that. And Peter freaks out. The story of Peter wanting to cover up. This glory, it, I, I'm not sure that this is what Mark was thinking, but it drew my, my kind of scriptural imagination back to another story from Genesis, um, the story of Adam and Eve being ashamed of their nakedness and wanting to cover it up. Because I think, you know, when I was especially around people who talked a lot about glory and maybe why I'm so comfortable as a Lutheran in the ashes and in kind of the, the sinner grace stuff is because seeing glory and seeing beautiful things can both inspire us it can make us want to stay in that moment. It can make us, it can draw forth the belovedness and the goodness and the joy and the imagination out of us, like when you hear beautiful music or you meet somebody whose life just makes yours come alive. But if you're like me, it can also make you feel really ashamed. And I wonder if Peter, in the presence of this light and this glory and this amazingness and in the presence of these great giants of faith, is also kind of ashamed and wants to cover it up, containing it. Uh, controlling it, trying to almost put some distance between it. I don't know, that's my speculation, but maybe you have that same kind of um, experience. I don't think it's not a real connection we can make. Scripture invites us to feel these resonances and these echoes, because Peter oftentimes in the Gospels is not seen as such a great person, right? He makes lots of mistakes. At one point, when he encounters Jesus, he even says, "'Lord, I am a man of unclean lips.'" You can't, I can't be in your presence anymore. That's just like one of his first responses to seeing Jesus. Peter sees reality unveiled. He sees this glory. He sees this beauty. He sees something awesome. And he feels some sort of shame and fear. Maybe he's afraid if he doesn't contain it and capture it and own it, that it won't be there for him later, right? Like this is his one chance because maybe the rest of his life is not so great. His need to control and to stay in that place. The, the light can also kind of, right, emphasize how dark some things get for us inside. Um, I'm reminded of this really great quote from the movie Tree of Life um, that Terrence Malick directed. And it's about like this family in Texas, right? And it's also a metaphor for all sorts of cosmic stuff. And there's dinosaurs in it, apparently, um, <laughs> which I never really understood. But uh, Brad Pitt plays this guy named Mr. O'Brien. And he's trying, this whole, this whole movie right, is about him trying to get ahead and trying to build this life and trying to um, become important in the world. And of course, uh, it doesn't really work out for him. And he ends up doing some kind of prideful things. And he says this towards the end of the film. He says, I wanted to be loved because I was great, a big man, but I'm nothing. Look at the glory all around us, trees and birds. I've lived in shame. I dishonored it all and didn't notice the glory. I'm a foolish man. I'm gonna turn 39 next Sunday. Uh, This time of year with Ash Wednesday is also my birthday. And it can be very easy in midlife. I know I'm I'm just working through this and it takes the time it takes for each of us, but to see all the things that I haven't done, all the glory that I haven't seen, all the opportunities that I've wasted and not capitalized on all the amazing moments when I could have made someone feel more special or feel more loved that I didn't. Um, and maybe some of you during COVID, feel that shame, right? There's. I've noticed a lot of people just feel ashamed about COVID, right? I had all this extra time. Um, I didn't have to be at work. I could have started this hobby or I could have meditated more or I just feel like I've been such a waste and all I've done is watch Netflix and drink too much or whatever, right? I mean, maybe you have your own version of that um, shame in the face of other people's glory in the face of what our life could have been is a real feeling as well. Um, maybe for some of us, it's just because we're, we have mental illness and depression and we struggle or addiction and it controls us and we don't know how to escape from it. Like we see that glimpse of glory. We know it's there and we want it and we're afraid it might never be ours, right? That that glory is for someone else. It's for Moses and Elijah and Jesus. But if I don't put a tent on it or I don't find some way to capture it or make it mine, I'll be left out. I call it, in, in my worst days, I call it despairing. right? It's this feeling like where we deserve the ashes and it just feels good to feel bad because... We don't know how to always feel good. And I think even the, the thing about Ash Wednesday, right? Is this kind of like covering up. It's, it's kind of like wanting to put a tent on things. Like we need to contain and name that limitation. Like we need to mark ourselves in some way because we need it to be real. We need to know that this feeling we're feeling is something that other people feel too. And we're not alone in our shame. That even though we all see the glory, we need to know that other people also see the lack of glory and feel that disconnection from it, right? Feel that, that lack. And that's real. That's a real thing, you know, it's a real fear, it's a real shame some of us have. Uh, so one of the concerns I have for some forms of progressive practice-based Christianity like the kind I promote is that it puts so much effort then on, did you read the right books? Do you have the right ideas? Are you doing your daily meditation? Have you achieved? Um, the next yoga stance? Are you able to achieve glory? Like, have you lived a happy life? And if not, are you just not self-actualizing enough? Or did you just not, you know, believe in goodness enough? Or did you not have enough money to, you know, go to the Center for Action and Contemplation for their expensive seminar they're putting on, right? Um, there can be a, a form of despair in that too, in the self-help and the kind of self-actualization world. And uh, it can lead us to see this story kind of like Peter, like, I want that, but... Is it really for me? Like, I know we say beloved, we see love, we say glory all the time. Is it really for me? Because even though it sounds nice to say around the other progressive Christians who believe in original belovedness like me, something's still eaten away. Like, I still feel ashamed that I'm not who I want to be and that I haven't achieved that and I may never achieve it. That's real, and, and and it's okay to sit with that. Some, in some ways, Lent is a time to to be able to sit with that, to sit in those ashes and be real and just experience that. Like we can't avoid that. Again, Christianity embraces that full spectrum of our humanity: this longing and this desire and this inspiration we have for glory, and also the other side of it, these ashes that we carry within us. Things that came out and lives that we didn't live and glory that we missed out on, where we've been foolish, where we've been like Peter rather than like Elijah. And that's why I think it's so important that we capture this moment here, this moment of transfiguration and, and Ash Wednesday, um, where as we begin Lent, we can enter into this time of going deeper into the shadow lands of our full humanity, knowing both our destiny, that we are from light into light we shall return, and also that these ashes are real and that these things in our lives are real and that even some of these things in our life, these sources of shame, are things that it's worth letting go of during Lent. It's framing Lent in a way to make it not about, I'm so bad and I just need to make God happy or I need to do my discipline so my parents will, you know, give me chocolate And Easter comes back again. Um, but to say it's worth working through some of these barriers. It's worth working through some of the things in my life that are enslaving me because I want to liberate the life within. I am a beloved child of God, and I am worth loving. No matter how many times I've messed up during COVID or during my life, I don't have to earn that glory back. Because this story tells us that glory, that light, that, love, that belovedness, that goodness lives in us, whether we like it or not. It is part of our nature. It is part of what it means to be human. It is part of what it means to be beloved of God. And if we have any doubt of it, At the end of Lent, Jesus would rather die to bring forth that glory than destroy us or take vengeance on us. The cross, as Romans said, God loved us while we were yet sinners, and this proves God's love for us. Christ thinks it's worth it to go to the cross to liberate our glory, our light, and our life. The resurrection is just icing on the cake, saying, see, life is good, and I'm going to bring it back, and let's keep this thing rolling. But transfiguration shows the why behind it. It shows us that if we are mired in shame and shackled by some of this despair and we are addicted to this, uh, the grayness of the Rochester winter living in our souls, that that is not who we are and we can't lose it no matter what we do. God said, let there be light. It is good and let there be more. And it can give us the courage then to face and to work through even just one thing in our life, that keeps us from living out of our true identity as God's beloved children. Lent becomes not this way of pacifying God or doing disciplines in order to you know, self-actualize. It becomes an opportunity to do some uncovering and some unbinding and some liberating. Uh, I, I know that when I approach a discipline because I'm going to um, bring something out of it, it's much more life-giving than when I'm just trying to you know, fix something or maintain, right? Um, lent is about a time of getting rid of all that is not life. So that we can be more fully alive even if just one step forward in doing so in community helping one another remember the light and the life that lives in us being honest when we can say you know that thing that you love is actually choking the light within you and i would love to come alongside with you to help cultivate that life within you because your beauty and your belovedness and your gifts are too beautiful to keep hiding or to keep letting be enslaved by your shame It's such a different framing of things, right, than when we say we're sinners and we just need to remind ourselves for 40 days and maybe do a little bit of spiritual self-help so we can be better by the end versus saying we are so worth it. And there's some good and some beauty and some joy and some delight in someone that I've never seen before, and I'd love to help cultivate that in you. I'd love for you to help me cultivate that in me. Let's bring out this light in one another. Instead of trying to cover it up or trying to— Tabernacle it. Let's set it free in the world and let it shine forth. What I love about this is Jesus, as the song said at the beginning, really is our future and our past. We are made full of light, and to light we shall return. We are made good and made abundant to be shared in the world, just as God shares God's glory forth and doesn't hoard it or or, or try to keep it all to God's self. It's the truth. And when we frame our Christian existence, our practice in terms of this truth, rather than in terms of just brokenness or just messed upness or just needing to get into heaven. But really, this is who we were made to be. We can't lose it. What are we going to do to get into it and to bring it forth? Then even if today is the first day that you're feeling like you're going to start living for that glory, you feel like Brad Pitt, that foolish man, um, and that you've missed so much glory in the past 39 or 59 or 19 years of your life. Christ says you still have it. And you still have this community and we still have this family, which extends back to Moses and Elijah, extends forth into the folks sitting around their screens right now here journeying with, extends into other denominations and other traditions across the world and across time. And we're called to journey towards that together, just as Jesus journeyed towards it in the Gospel of Mark and in the story of salvation. We follow Jesus to the cross, not just so we can get into heaven, but so that the world can be made more fully alive And so every single human being can hear the promise and the delight that God speaks over them. Let there be light. It is good. And let there be more. God's glory is you fully alive, is me fully alive, is the world fully alive, liberated from structures and ideologies and oppressions that destroy and deny life. Broken wide open so all can know themselves as beloved and we can live out of that abundance. So I hope that that is what Lent is partially about for you this year. As you do the ashes and you embrace the glory, as you celebrate and as you grieve, as you pursue disciplines and as you enjoy the godly God-given nature and the voice of Christ whispering in your heart, you can trust in the depths of your heart that at your most childlike moments, you're not deceived. That voice that says you are good and it is worth pursuing is not just your voice. It's the voice of the one who created you and longs to see you liberated once and for all, and it is in the name of this Creator and the Incarnate Jesus Christ that I offer this sermon. Let us pray, God. I give you thanks that our destiny that our true nature in you is not one of original sin or original brokenness, but of original belovedness, that we are made from light into light. we shall return. Thank you that this light comes to us in the flesh of our bodies in the realness of relationships and the touch of hands and in the hearing of voices. Thank you that your light shines forth in the world in so many places. I pray that when we are lost in shame, when we are tempted to despair, when we believe that we have lost the glory, we would look to your mountain of transfiguration and we would look at the beauty in one another and have courage to face those things which keep us from life, that we might be healers and cultivators that we may follow you to the cross to bring out in this world the light that you made it for. Thank you for this community that has nurtured and sustained my family. Thank you for all the communities and all the friends who journey with us to the mountaintops and in the valleys. We pray all this in the name of the Spirit and of Jesus. Amen. For
0: more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.